Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us ears to listen to your word. Help us through your Holy Spirit to direct us into all truth. May the words of the Apostle John grow our faith this morning and lead us deeper into the love of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Why is it always so hard to get good directions? A few years ago, my friends and I planned a camping trip uh, to Colville National Forest, which is way up in the northeastern part of Washington. And my original plan for navigation was to use the written directions that I found somewhere online from people who had been to the campsite before. You know, I didn't want to depend on having uh, mobile data or service when I was getting close to the campsite because it was pretty far out there. But here's the thing, you don't actually need service for Google Maps to work. You just need to set up the route beforehand and just let GPS take it from there. This was way more convenient, and for me, I thought it felt safer because you know, written directions won't tell you like if you missed a turn or something. So I decided to listen to Google Maps. And I listened when Google Maps directed me to go straight instead of taking a right like the written directions said. Now this was the only place that the two directions disagreed. And according to the map, the two routes were going to converge in about two miles. So it doesn't really matter which way I go. Mostly I was afraid that if I deviated from the route um, when I was out of service that my app might try to refresh and I'd lose my visual map. So I went with Google Maps. I listened to Google Maps. I followed that bright blue line onto a narrow dirt road that actually took me between this guy's house and his, his shed, which probably should have been my first hint, uh, and then into a very densely wooded area. And by the time I got to the wooded area, I was, I was only a mile from where I'd converge with the other route. But obviously, I was getting a bit suspicious, especially at this point as branches were scraping on both sides of my windows. Um, but for some odd reason, call it faith, call it hubris, call it bean brain stupidity, I kept listening to Google Maps. And I listened to her all the way to the place where that dirt road finally just completely disappeared. It was about a thousand feet from where it was promised to reconverge with the other route. So yeah, I had to turn around and I got pretty good at backwards driving that day. It matters who you listen to. I listened to Google Maps when I should have listened to the testimonies of the people who'd actually been to the campsite before. Google Maps was convenient, it was colorful, it was enticing, but that didn't matter because it was simply wrong. The written directions had the truth, but I didn't have the faith to listen. St. John writes in his first letter about distinguishing truth from lies. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he's dealing with the problem of false prophets in his church, people who claim to speak from God and yet deny Jesus. So his church probably struggled with just accepting uncritically every teaching that claimed to be inspired. They didn't know what to believe or who to listen to. 
Now, determining what to believe is something that we all have to figure out. Some of us tend toward a superstition that just believes everything. Some of us tend toward a suspicion that believes nothing. John addresses this issue by giving his audience a concise confession of truth that they can always trust. And it's this, Jesus is the Christ who has come in the flesh. Let's look at verse two. He says, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So why did John use this? Right, the person of Jesus as the test of orthodoxy in this letter. What about the incarnation is so central, so necessary for the Apostle John? Well, it's because this is the gospel itself. This is the ultimate reality. This is the truth that lies at the center of the universe. And this is the great message of the church. Right? If you don't have this, then what is the church? It's nothing. So today we're going to examine this short confession and we'll find that John is making three claims about Jesus that we're going to explore. First, that Jesus is the Christ, Israel's true Messiah. Second, that Jesus is the Christ who has come, that he came from somewhere, from someone. He's pre-existent. And third, that Jesus is the Christ who has come in the flesh. He's truly human. Jesus is the Christ who has come in the flesh. St. Andrews, this is your confession. All three of these together form the confession that gives life, hope, and salvation to all who believe it. So first, Jesus is the Christ. By now, you might have noticed that I'm wording the English translation of this text a bit differently than how it's rendered in your worship guide or your Bible. The ESV just says Jesus Christ. I just want to emphasize that Christ isn't Jesus' last name, of course, but it's a title that's given to him. And it's a controversial title, because not everybody agrees that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. But what does it mean for you to call Jesus the Christ? Christ is a title that comes from the Greek. Uh, It's a word that means the anointed one. And the word Messiah from the Hebrew, it's the same meaning. The title of anointed one was used to describe lots of people in the Old Testament who were anointed by God to perform certain roles, especially the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Now, these were the roles that God gave to leaders in Israel to mediate the covenants between God and his people. So they acted as a kind of bridge between heaven and earth. Now remember, the Old Testament is full of all of these promises that God would one day send a figure to fulfill these roles in a special way. This promised anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, would permanently bridge heaven and earth once and for all. We see this in Jeremiah 33, 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to make sacrifices forever. So the anointed one was to be a new and better prophet, priest, and king. And God's intention with this coming anointed one was nothing less than to bring 
peace and blessing to all the nations, to bring forgiveness of sins, liberation from the powers of death and the devil. He's David's son who sits on God's throne forever. He's the great high priest who entered the presence of God and offered himself as a sacrifice for eternal redemption. He's God's ultimate prophet who reveals the true character and nature of the Father. The Old Testament tells the story of a people waiting in anticipation for God's anointed one. So when you call Jesus the Christ, you're trusting that he's the one in whom all of Israel's destiny is summed up. That he's the person that God promised to fulfill his purposes for the redemption of creation, to bring healing to your broken relationships, to forgive the sins you struggle to even name, to bring all the chaos in the world back to harmony. If Jesus isn't our mediator, our savior, then either we're going to believe that somebody else is, or otherwise that there is just no salvation. War and poverty, betrayal, these are all just the natural order of things that we should accept. But who, who actually believes that? Everybody believes in a savior, whether they admit it or not. The world simply isn't as it should be. But your idols can't save you. Your house and your family, they aren't your assurance. Your political ideal probably doesn't exist in reality. But Jesus anointing, Jesus' anointing as Savior was proclaimed at his baptism and then vindicated in his resurrection, which we celebrate this season. Jesus and Jesus alone is the Christ who bridges heaven and earth for our sake. He rightly belongs to both heaven and earth because he's truly God and man. And this brings us to the second and third part of John's short confession, that Jesus has come in the flesh. Jesus has come in the flesh. Now, the two implications of this statement are, one, that he had a divine existence prior to becoming flesh, and two, that he became a man. And the Greek verb that we render as has come, it's not in the past tense, but it's in what's called the perfect tense. Now, this means that his coming in the flesh isn't just a historical act, you know, like, remember that time Jesus came in the flesh? That was kind of cool. But the perfect tense implies a settled state. As in, at one point in time, he came in the flesh, and he has been in the flesh ever since. He never left it behind. When the Son of God was born in Bethlehem, he became human forever. Whatever's true about humanity, about us, is true about Jesus except for sin. He sympathizes with us. Jesus has a human body with human bodily functions. He got tired and hungry and sick. Jesus has human emotions. He felt joy, courage, astonishment. He felt stress, anger, humiliation, loneliness, grief. Of course, he experienced these all without sin, but he wasn't a stoic. In fact, he was a vibrantly emotional man. Likewise, Jesus has a human mind and a human soul and a human spirit, if those are even different things. The point is, whatever humans have, Jesus does too, even now. Similarly, whatever's true about God, 
What's true about his nature is true about Jesus according to his divine nature. He's uncreated, immeasurable, eternal. He's almighty, worthy of all praise and worship, and everything that he does is only and always good. He's the same essence as the Father and the Holy Spirit, equal in divinity, majesty, and glory. So Jesus, therefore, has two natures, one human and one divine, and yet is one person. Just like we believe that God is three persons and yet is one God. So he's one person, not because the eternal Son of God turned into a human, but because he took our humanity into himself. So he's not 50% God, 50% human, but he's actually 100% God and 100% human. But why does all this matter? Right? Who cares that Jesus is both truly human and truly God? Well, remember, the Christ is the mediator between God and sinful humanity. He bridges heaven and earth. So if Jesus weren't truly human, he couldn't identify with us in our fallen condition in order to redeem us and raise us up to eternal life in God. He couldn't satisfy the justice of God by coming under the law and obeying it perfectly for our sake. He couldn't partake in our sufferings and offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin to God. And in summary, as St. Gregory of Nazianzus said, the unassumed is the unhealed. Jesus had to completely and radically assume what is common to all humanity so that through his perfect life, death, and ascension, he could rescue us from the curse of death and raise us with him to eternal life. He restores to us our original vocation as co-rulers of creation with God. Likewise, if Jesus weren't truly God, then he couldn't have lived a sinless life. His suffering would have been fruitless. He couldn't have sustained the human nature under the wrath of God and the power of death. His humanity could only get him so far. Jesus didn't come merely to be a man in participation with humanity, but through that participation to bring humanity into participation with God. In other words, only as human could he be in communion with us. And only as God could he bring us into communion with God. And that's exactly what he did. St. John presents this as the test of all orthodox teaching because this is the truth that changes everything. This isn't just a truth, but this is the truth around which all other truth revolves. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This confession is the gospel that's the anchor for your heart. It can give you hope when your life is uncertain or even unbearable. This is the only confession that provides you assurance that you're indeed forgiven, that your inheritance is eternal life with God as an adopted son or daughter. If Jesus is who he says he is, then as Julian of Norwich said, all is well, and all is well, and all manner of things shall be well, that everything is going to be okay. This isn't a confession 
that you can simply give intellectual assent to and then go on living life unchanged. Listen to what John goes on to write about the power of this confession, that Jesus is the Christ who's come in the flesh. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. They, meaning false prophets uh, from the Antichrist. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God, or what we say is from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, the apostles of Jesus. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Notice, we don't need to overpower or outwit or outnumber our enemies in order to overcome them. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers and principalities of the world. And he whom we confess, who lives within you, is greater than he who's in the world because he has overcome the world. You need only to listen to him, to listen to the spirit of God. The words of the apostles are from the spirit of God because they're Jesus' words. So there's power in listening to Jesus. In fact, it's by listening to him, believing what he says about God and about the world and about your life, that you overcome the powers of death and the devil. Now, how does that even make sense? Isn't the devil a powerful and personal force in the world? Well, he is, but his power and influence are nothing without his deception. So it matters who you listen to. It was by listening to the serpent and believing his lie about God, um, to believing his lie above God's word, that humanity forfeited our original co-rule and reign of creation, right? We subjected ourselves to the devil's power and influence, and we continue to do so as long as we listen to him and to the world as it stands against God. So because sin and death came into the world through a lie, so salvation comes into the world through believing the truth, through listening to God's word, his word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus lived his life with his ear to his father. He not only listened to him, but he believed him and he followed him. And that way of life led him through much suffering, through betrayal and loneliness, even to death. But scripture says that even the dead can hear and listen to the voice of God that beckons them to leave their tombs behind and come out into the glory of God's son. So may we tune our ears to this voice, to the spirit of truth, and always have the courage to follow it through death to life anew. And may we be a people who find vibrant hope and life in our confession of Jesus Christ, who's come in the flesh, to whom be all honor and glory and dominion, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. 
You are our shepherd and we know your voice. Help us to discern the truth from the lies that we hear every day. We're told lies about who you are, about who we are in you. Give us boldness to always speak the truth, to stand on the rock of faith as we weather the difficulties of each of our lives. Lord, we pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.